0: Hello there, and welcome to Not The Farmer's Wife podcast. I'm CJ Steedman, and I'm definitely not the farmer's wife. I am a mum, a partner, a full-time off-farm worker, and enthusiastically a lady farmer. On our farm, Mojo Homestead, we grow chickens, goats, cows, and bees. We practise regenerative agriculture and holistic management. If, like me, you love all things farming and homesteading, and if you'd like to learn from the female farmer's perspective then I'd love to have you along for the ride. So let's get farming. G'day everyone and welcome to another episode of Not the Farmer's Wife. I'm CJ and I'm your host. Uh, This week, before we get into our topic of the cost of starting a homestead or the cost of sustainable living, which to me are one and the same, before we get into that, I just want to let you know that I have started posting a lot of stuff over on YouTube And I was going to actually record this as a video episode and post it to YouTube. But the whole idea of having to make sure that my hair was brushed (laughs) and that I looked okay, uh, yeah, just got the better of me. So recording it is, uh, we'll work on the YouTube clips maybe for next month. Um, so we are going to be talking about the cost of sustainable living now, um, the reason that we're going to talk about that is because we're still in our finance month of July, uh, but also I think a lot of people, and it's certainly a lot of questions I get relate to, oh, well, that must cost a lot. You know, it must cost a lot to feed all those animals. It must cost a lot to live on a property like that. So I wanted to kind of run through and clear up a few myths about living um, on a homestead type environment, um, and also a few myths about being off grid and, and having that self-sustainability as far as our... Um, energy and water outputs so we're just going to go through a few little topics um, and uh, you know as usual if you've got any questions DM me because I'm more than happy to help out and answer any questions particularly if it's something that's a bit you feel like there's no dumb questions but if you think ah I'm really not sure about that I wonder whether somebody could you know kind of If somebody's been there before or done it before, believe me, I have made more fuck-ups than I've made not fuck-ups, and I'm more than happy to help out and answer any questions. So the first one is the big one, the initial purchase of land of your farm, of your homestead. Now, you could be in an urban or a suburban environment and homesteading, and that's no problem at all. You just have to reduce everything down to fit onto that block of land that you've got. So you can still have your veggie garden. You can still have your backyard chickens. You can still have a beehive in the backyard. I've known people to put beehives on roofs where they don't have enough space in the backyard, so to speak. So your initial land purchase could be the house you're already living in. Or if you're like me and never can do anything by halves, it may be that you want to go to a bigger block, that you want to live out of town, that you want to be in that environment where you have all the space in the world to do what you want with. Now we're on 120 acres here but prior to that we're on two and a half acres and certainly if you're of an in-between kind of mindset where you're thinking hmm not sure that I could do the 120 acres that sounds like a lot of land to look after. It is a lot of land to look after. So if you think that two acres, five acres, ten acres is probably your limit then definitely start with that. Look for that and and, you know I I think we talked about it in my interview with the Handy Helper. I used to get in trouble because I spent so much time on all homes, which for my overseas visitors. Oh, and by the way, hello, overseas listeners. I can't believe I've got so many people listening who are from countries other than Australia and even other than the USA. I know I've got a few UK listeners, but I've also got some European and and uh, Middle Eastern, and it's very exciting for me. I am i wasn't expecting people to listen from other countries other than Boring old Australia. Um, So, some people um, uh, need to go and have a look. And you know, all homes for us. There might be a different kind of real estate page where you are. Go and look and see what land is worth and what properties are available and how far out of town you would have to move in order to be able to afford it. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'd love one hundred and twenty acres, ten minutes down the road from town. It would be awesome. However, that wasn't going to happen. I can't afford a $2 million block just to be 15 minutes into town. Um, So you need to think about what you need for your family, what's going to suit for your family. And don't go too big too soon is my hot tip there. And I say it all the time, even with gardening and livestock, start small and work your way up. If you go crazy and and bite off more than you can chew, you have two choices. You can either throw in the towel and move back into town or chew like crazy. Um, so <laughs> it's your choice, but I'd be going with the, well, I went chew like crazy, but it's probably easier to start small. Like I did two and a half acres. After three years on the two and a half acres, I realized I wanted more land and it's been three years now on the 120 acres and it was the best thing I've ever done. So when you are looking for a block, though, think about the things that you're going to need. If you're going to be very heavily heavy into livestock, you're going to need a water source. Now, that water source could be a natural spring. It could be dams like we have here. We also have a natural spring. Um, but you might have, find a block of land that's got river frontage. And so long as that river doesn't flood very often and cause you dramas in that respect, um, a property with a river frontage is gold. Like grab it, take it, keep it. You know, it's if we could have a river frontage here, that would just make this property um, well. It would have made it unaffordable for us because everybody would have wanted it as well. So, start small and work your way up. Now, the next thing that you need to look at is infrastructure and equipment. And so, when you're looking at these blocks of land, if you're out, you know, having a, a poke around, um. Have a look and see what they've got. Have they got a barn that's suitable for um, raising baby goats in when you have to you know, get the mumma goats in around kidding time? Now, with our milkers, we are always hands-on with the kidding. With our angoras, we've only bred one year, uh, and we only have one that actually got pregnant. Um, the, the number that we've got available this year, angoras are very hardy goats, and they can stand out in the climate without any dramas. But we're going to build a little run at the top of their paddock, their main paddock, so that we can bring the mamas in when they're going into kid. Now, the only reason for that is because I have not seen them kid before. And my concern is if they get into trouble or if they need assistance, I won't be there to help if they're out in the paddock. Now, with our milking goats, we just want to be there because we want to be hands-on with them right from the get-go because those animals are always kept very hand-tame. The angoras, that's not so important, but... Think about barns, kidding areas, um, round yards if you have horses or stock that you need to work. Um, Do you have a a cattle um, yard that you can use to unload and load cattle if you're going to be going into um, beef or dairy cattle in that way? Um, Do you have a shearing shed if you've got shearing requirements? Um, For us, we've only got a handful of Angoras. Our shearer has this awesome setup on his trailer where he, he drops the deck off the trailer And he shears them literally in the driveway, uh, which is great. We don't need any infrastructure for that. But you need to think about water tanks, dams, barns, round yards, fencing. Fencing is a huge expense. Um, And when I say huge expense, it's only expensive because there's so much that needs doing usually on a bigger property. So for us, we have several very well fenced yards that are suitable for goats. But uh, the handy helper and I just three days ago walked up the hill to check the fence line so that we could start dropping our dairy goats into our front paddock uh, without them getting through into our next door neighbor's property so border fences are the most important you need to be able to contain your animals onto your property within your property you can use electric fencing like we do to separate them into different paddocks But that's something that you need to think about. You need to know whether the farm is coming with those items or whether you're going to have to purchase them. Now, if you are purchasing equipment or infrastructure in that respect, please, please, please consider secondhand or used. (laughs) It is such a great way to save funds. Honestly, um, I can't... I'm I'm a huge um, advocate for secondhand purchases. Uh, We don't need the new version every single time. I mean, underwear and socks... That's probably about my limit. Oh, and toothbrushes. Yeah, and hairbrushes maybe. Brand new. Everything else, seriously, buy it secondhand. Even bras ladies, you could buy them secondhand. I don't. I buy them new, but yeah. I also buy the cheap Kmart ones and then trash them when they're done. Um, but for large infra- infrastructure, tractors, uh, little 4x4s, trailers to, to pull feed around, um, even feed bins and things like that, if you can pick them up secondhand at a clearance sale, that's going to save you so much money for setting up your homesteading and, and self-sustainability on your farm. So think about that. Uh, the next one I want to talk about is soil improvement and fertility. And I laugh about this because I remember reading, um, I'm, a, I'm a big reader of Joel Salatin's books. And if you don't know Joel Salatin, I'll put a link in the show notes, but Joel is a farmer from Washington, D.C. Um, I think the little town nearest to him is a town called Swoop. And his father bought a property years ago, and it was an old dairy, and I think they had trashed it. It was like the old farming practices. And they had trashed the soil. It had just been um, overused and never allowed to rest or recover or repair from, from its overuse. So he tells a story about how when they moved out there, Everybody was laughing and saying, you'll never be able to grow anything because the, the soil was so badly damaged that it was just like corrugated ruts all through it and nothing would grow. And, you know, he couldn't, it was so rock hard. His father used to use concrete tires. He used to put concrete in the middle of tires to hold fence posts in because they couldn't get fence posts into the ground because the ground was so hard. So the soil was shit. And I don't know, 30, 40 years on. Um, He has one of the most productive small farms you've ever seen. And I can't wait. I want to go over and do a farm tour because I just, I think his setups are awesome. He's done a lot of the hard work for us, for people coming after him. Uh, And so I'd love to go over and pick his brain. He's like my goal interviewee for Not the Farmer's Wife. I just want to interview him so that I can get all that information out to you guys. Anyway, so um, Soil Availability. You need to make sure that your soil is is okay. Now that being said, it doesn't have to be perfect. It took him forty years to get his soil right. You don't want to take that long, but if you um, understand the concept of pasture rotation and moving livestock, and and if you don't know what I'm talking about, I'm and I'll put a link as well for this one. Uh, Alan Savory, who wrote a book called Holistic Management, he does a TEDx talk. That explains how to improve soil health and how to have continued grassland production so well, I can't do it justice by explaining it in a few minutes. So I'll put a link in for that TEDx talk so you can go and have a listen to that if you'd like. But the main thing is, is that we utilize nature the way it was intended, which is we get livestock who are going to shit and pee and stomp and chomp down grass, and we move them. From paddock to paddock after they've completely you know stomped in all their poop and, and all that kind of thing into the ground and eaten all the grasses down to the not you know cattle are good they don't eat it they don't pull the roots out like sheep do they they just chomp it down to like grass level um, once they've done that that gives the plant an opportunity to regrow and so having them pee and poo and having the manure all spread into the ground there, and then you move them off that pasture and onto another pasture that hasn't been eaten for a while. That gives the grassland a chance to boom back. And when it does that, when you then bring the cattle, if you rotate through five or six paddocks, and you bring them back onto that grassland. When you bring them back onto the grassland, it's beautiful. It's nice. The the grass is growing. It's lush. It's had this great fertilizer on it. It's uh, the soil was all compacted down how it's supposed to under hoof, not not you know with people driving across it. it. It's ideal. Anyway, as I said, Alan Savory describes it much better than me. But soil soils need to have that pasture rotation model happening with livestock in order to um, maintain their health. And anybody that says that you can just grow crop after crop after crop in grassland and not have to you know worry about livestock and get away from that livestock model has got rocks in their head and they need to go and have a read of a couple of books and I can list those books if you need them uh, but you cannot have soil health without livestock being on that ground um, So that and that's that basically is the whole story of regenerative agriculture so those regenerative agricultural practices that you can put into place will improve your soil health and it will do it reasonably quickly Um, the guy that lives next door to me has um, got his carbon um, download into the soil and that's how I prefer to call it a download he's got his carbon download into the soil I think to quadruple in about 10 years so the soil health is just phenomenal to look at his paddocks uh, and that's from Livestock Rotation. Um, so I'll, I'll put all the links, read that Alan Savory book, uh, but Holistic Management, it's worth a read. It's it's a bit dry. It's like a textbook, but it's worth a read. Uh, the next one you need to look at if you're considering, you know, a move to property is your water management. And the costs of water management aren't too bad, Um, it's there's a big outlay, but once it's done then it's just a matter of helping nature take its course so if you live in a drought prone area like we do in Australia just about everywhere can have droughts although in the last two years we've had nothing but rain but that's because it's a wet season of years and we'll go into our dry years that are coming up and when that happens we'll be very grateful for the things we've set up so you want to look at having some dams now dams are expensive to put in. So if you're looking at a property, if it's got two on it, that's a plus for you because that's an expense you're not going to have to put out. Um, but also having water tanks to collect rainwater. Now we have a 110,000 liter water tank. It cost us $10,000 to have it bought by it and have it installed. We've also got a couple of old tanks on the property that were here when we moved here and we use them as our stock feed tanks. So they sit up on top of the hill and it gravity feeds down into the water troughs. Uh, We also have a tank that sits up on the hill that gravity feeds down to our house so that we don't have a pump running all the time. Um, And that comes into our electricity, which I'll discuss next. But if you um, have any downhill slopes, if it's not a perfectly flat block of land, you need to use... Um, some systems and I'm trying to think of the guy's name and I can't think of it but it's an Australian guy and he came up with a system of using a chain of ponds basically anywhere where there's a downhill run of water he puts little dam barriers in so the dam barriers could be rocks it could be large logs um, you know he's used concrete in areas where there's no natural substance to put in there but what you want to do is slow the water run off down so you still want the water to run downhill into the dam or whatever collection point you've got at the bottom. But the idea is to slow it down so that you have little ponds, chains of ponds coming down the hill, which you can then utilise for water into paddocks for livestock. Now setting up those kinds of things, there's a lot of manual labour in them, but not so much cost. Um, you know, if you need to move some big boulders or big tree stumps, then yeah, there might be cost. You might have to hire a backer or get somebody in with a digger. Um, but but a lot of it could be done by hand the biggest one you're going to have to look at is the water tank and like i say it was ten thousand dollars for us to set up the hundred and ten thousand liter water tank but that was absolutely worth it we had so much rain in that next year uh, that that hundred and ten thousand liter is full now that means that we're completely off grid for water we don't pay any water rates Um, we have not had to have water carted in I worked it out that 110,000 litre, and you have to do it for your individual circumstances, but 110,000 litres for us gives a family of four about two years' worth of water if you're conservative with your water use, and we are. So we do little things around the house to save that kind of cost of water. And, and you know, at the end of the day, you should look at every bit of water that you're spending. Every bit of water that you're using is water you're spending. So we do things like we have a, a bucket in the sh- bottom of the shower, during the um, dry seasons so that we can bucket excess water out of the shower out to the veggie garden and not have to pump water out of the dam to the veggie garden. Same with our washing up. Um, We don't wash directly into the sink. We have a tub inside the sink that sits inside, a plastic tub, sits inside the sink. We wash up in there and then we carry that water out to the veggie garden or to the herb garden or even just the lawn if it's getting a bit dry. Um, we have our shower runoff and our washing machine runoff going out into our lawn area, which is in, in our house block. So that means we always have lush green grass around the house so we don't have to worry about dust and things like that. It just helps keep the house a little bit cleaner. Um, but you just every time you use water, you just have to think of it as a cost, and and it's a cost you don't want to spend. If you can collect it and maintain it and use it, several times so use your gray water systems where you're using it for you know doing clothes washing and then the water funnels out into the lawn and waters the lawn. Uh, so long as you're not using any crappy soaps you'll be fine. So the next one on the list is renewable energy now this is a big cost and if you can find a property that has a renewable energy set up already on it then you're going to be well in front. Sorry, a little slope of tea. Um, you're going to be well in front if it's already got those things on it. We chose to move to a completely off-grid system when we moved here because that's what we were looking for. And when we found this place with with it being completely off-grid, we are very happy with that. So the cost of solar panels, I actually don't know what the cost of solar panels is. Our solar panels that we have here, we have quite a few, and they're all in reasonably good condition. So we've not had to buy any. But... I don't think they're super, super expensive on the greater scheme of things. The real expense for us has come down to batteries. (laughs) And man, have we made some mistakes. (laughs) So here's what not to do. My hot tip is on this occasion, do not buy secondhand. I know I say buy secondhand everything, but with solar batteries, we bought, I think it was eight secondhand batteries. So um, there are certain government bodies who will only keep a solar battery for 12 months, uh, like for backups for generators or backups for computer systems. And at the end of 12 months, they replace all of their batteries. Now, you don't know the history of that battery when you buy it. And that's why they're cheap. It was $250 a battery. And we're talking, you know, they're big batteries, 240 uh, hour recharge batteries. So they're pretty good. But we um, bought them second hand and it was the worst decision we could have made. Um, within probably three months, the first one had failed completely. So the Handy Helper has a little tester kit and he looks after all the solar stuff for me. He's got a little tester kit that he whacks on the battery to see what kind of charge it's holding. And within three months, one of them had failed completely and was holding no charge at all. Now, when one battery fails on the system, because they're all interlocked together, when one battery fails, it literally drains the other batteries. So as soon as you start having battery problems, you need to go and test them all and remove that battery. And, and you can remove that battery. And if there's no other batteries failing, the system will still work. Anyway, so we bought these eight, and I think all eight of them now have died and been <laughs> replaced because they were just shit. They were, it was the worst decision we could have made. And we've learned our lesson. Buy you, we need to make sure, and this is my hot tip for everybody, is make sure that you put money aside for solar batteries through the year. So even if it's just $20 a pay, put money aside, um, depending on where you shop and where you are. So in Australia, the cost of living at the moment is through the roof. I'm sure it's the same everywhere else. But solar batteries here, I was able to pick up some that are 145 charge hour so but that doesn't mean that they'll hold 145 hours it just means that they're not as big as say the 250s um so 145s and uh, i got them from believe it or not a four wheel drive superstore it not from a solar battery place a four wheel drive superstore and they had them for 300 and something dollars each which was insane. We've looked at the two the two hundred and fifty volt ones, the good ones, and particularly if they're lithium, you're looking at a thousand dollars plus. In some cases, fifteen hundred dollars. Um, the Tesla wall charge units, which we have never, you know, thought about getting out here. Um, somebody in town was telling me that they got one and it was fifteen thousand dollars. Now I don't know how many hours worth of power that holds i don't know what the charge rate is i don't know how many batteries it equates to the wall charges but the batteries are going to be your big expense so having the solar panel having the converter there you can get them all really cheap um, from different places that sell solar stuff in fact i buy stuff from alibaba um, you just have to register as a business with them and you can buy things direct from them um but the batteries, having the batteries, having brand new batteries is going to be your biggest expense. So I bought a thousand dollars worth of batteries a month ago. And as soon as we put them in and we had a couple of good days of sunshine, so they had a really good chance to charge up. We haven't had any problems with batteries since then. Now the other batteries that are in there are quite old and they will need replacing eventually, but Thankfully, these new batteries were enough of a boost to keep the system going. So now we're just gonna try and replace batteries every you know maybe four months. We'll try and get another battery and replace what we've got in there so that we never have these problems with power again. Now, one thing you do need to think about is being able to conserve power um, because obviously if you run out of power, you have a couple of things that you can do. One is you can go around, and turn everything off. Um, Including the fridge because the fridge drains a fair amount of power. Now, if you uh, if it's night time and nobody's opening the fridge, by all means, turn it off. It's you know it's going to hold its its temperature for a certain period of time. Obviously, use caution with that. And if anything's in there that's going to go off or go a bit yucky, don't do it. But we have turned our fridge off overnight when we've been low on power without any dramas. Um, but that's not ideal so we also have a, a petrol generator which is a backup for us so if we absolutely have to use power or we absolutely need to keep the fridge running we can go and charge the batteries based on our generator so that means we have the extra cost of fuel and at the moment i don't know what fuels like in the us but in australia certainly where i live you're looking at a dollar 85 a litre which is insane uh costco i've got it for a dollar 66 which is still dear but a bit better than a dollar 85 but yeah you need to put petrol in it in order to run the generator so that's an added cost so you don't want to have to do that any more than than necessary Uh, now one thing to look at if you are moving to a homesteady, self-sustainability kind of lifestyle is What appliances do you absolutely need and which ones do you not need? And let me tell you, we are pretty conservative here. Um, We've obviously got our computer and internet running and we're on Starlink. Uh, Yay, Elon Musk, love you. Since we've had that, we've had no problems with internet. Um, Unfortunately, in Australia, the satellite systems don't work terribly well. Um, So we're pretty conservative. We'll use a broom to sweep the floor rather than drag the vacuum cleaner out. Excuse me so we are very uh, mindful of how much power we're using we got rid of our dishwasher i love having a clean kitchen when i go to bed each night and we can't run the dishwasher overnight if we run the dishwasher overnight it will blow out the power so we don't so i just said no no dishwasher we'll just hand wash and then i know the kitchen's clean and i've not got stuff sitting in there until the next morning washing machines clothes washing uh we um don't run them overnight i used to where i used to live i used to run them overnight so i could hang them out in the morning we don't we set it on a timer now in the morning and the washing is done by the time we get home and we just hang it out then yes that means my washing is hanging on the line over (laughs) overnight and i don't care um one thing i will say is toasters and kettles oh my god if you have never looked at what a toaster and a kettle use in power, uh, wait till you <laughs> move off grid. <laughs> um, we have tossed out our kettle. We have a, a kettle that sits on the gas burner or, or the wood stove, and we scrap the electric kettle. It would flatten the batteries in a moment, matter of minutes. Um, same with the toaster. Unless the sun's out, the toaster doesn't get used. Um, I've taken to frying bread in a fry pan for my kids, which they actually love because... It's like it's dipped in butter, and I don't know anybody that's my generation, so old. Uh, my mum used to put um, tallow or lard on bread and fry it for us, and it always tasted amazing. It just ended up tasting like bacon bread, you know. Um, so, so my kids have gotten into doing that, and they love that. Um, so definitely with power, you can save lots and lots of money, but you can also spend lots and lots of money. You do, it's one of those weird situations where you kind of have to spend a bit of money to save a bit of money. So good batteries will save you in the long run. Um, Seed and plant costs. I've spoken about this before. Um, Seed saving is the bomb. Um, Seeds aren't expensive. On the greater scheme of things, they're not expensive. And if you're composting, um, I know with Bunnings, which is our local hardware store, uh, composting has saved me so much in soil costs. Um, the potting mix soils that I used to buy when I lived in um, in a smaller environment where I didn't have a lot of composting ability, um, you pay five bucks for a bag of, of compost, which doesn't sound like a lot, but it was shit compost. It was like the worst. You'd put seedlings in it, nothing would grow. So you'd end up having to spend 12, 15 bucks for a bag of the good quality seedling mix. Well, instead I can just compost and I have like a A boxed area set up where food scraps that don't go to the chickens go to the compost. Uh, Gardening waste, anything like that goes into that pile. Um, Straw or sawdust that's swept out of our brooder house or out of our goat houses. Uh, That gets all scraped up and gets composted because that's like a brown compost for us instead of a green wet one. Um, And the soil that I get out of that when it gets turned over, the handy helper goes in and turns it for me. Oh my God, the soil at the bottom is the bomb. There is nothing that won't grow in it. So you can save a lot of money just by being smart about how you compost and how you turn it over and make sure that you look after it. Um, same with the seed saving. You know, it might only cost five bucks for a packet of seeds, but if you're buying, you know, thirty dollars worth of seeds each, you know, couple of months, if you can seed save and cut that that expense out of the loop, any any reduction in expenditure out of the homestead is less money that you need to earn in the long run so it's a win Uh, Same with propagation of plants uh, i've got a sister-in-law who who doesn't listen this podcast but i won't say her name and she um walks into nurseries and if she sees a plant she likes she just uses her fingernail and snips a little little piece off the plant and then she goes home and she sticks it into a little bucket of soil a little cup like a takeaway cups worth of soil and grows plant. I don't know how she does it I'm such a brown thumb but she does it and she does a great job of it and she has plants all through her house that she hasn't paid for some people might say this is stealing uh, I see it as reacquiring a plant leaf that might have fallen off otherwise um, but you know what I mean you can you can definitely um, increase your um, garden uh, with minimal cost, and it, like I say, money seem like a little bit, but it all adds up in the end. So, the next one is a big cost, and this big cost is one that I spoke about on a little video that I did the other day regarding livestock and animal feed. Now, if you're doing your regenerative agricultural model where you are pasture crop rotating, uh, pasture paddock rotating, uh, then you should have a good quality pasture that you can feed to your livestock. However, you may still need to hand feed. So our lovely layers that we have, our our chickens, they have to get layer pellets. It doesn't matter that they're on pasture. They still need that supplementary feed of layer pellets. Um, Our milking goats, they are on really good pasture, but they also need a supplementary feed. Their, Their output is higher than what their output would be in the wild if they weren't being milked and therefore we need to top up their feed in that respect. We also need to make sure they're getting enough nutrients, and that goes for both our layers and for our milking goats. Our angoras and our cows are much, much hardier, and they're able to survive on that pasture rotation system. Now, we still hand feed a little bit, and certainly in summer months or in months where we would have, you know, a lot of hot weather and drought, and there's not a lot of grass growing, then we will top up by uh, usually feeding hay. And hay is also really, really awesome for baby goats and any baby animals because it promotes their ruminant um, ability. So it it helps their stomachs work out how to function. Um, So it's really important that you feed them that dry kind of grassy feed. Uh, Now, um, we also have dog feed costs, which our dogs are very lucky. They get a pet mince and a dry kibble, um, and they get a half and half kind of system with that. Um, but it's all costs that you have to work out. Now, if you want to have a look at that, if you go to, um, either my TikTok, Instagram or Facebook accounts, you'll see I did a little video on stock feed and I outlined what the costs were for each of the bags and things like that. Uh, but I think the dearest one was one of the goat blends, uh, which was $39 a bag, but everything else is below that. Um, Now, as I say, if you're you're doing the um, pasture rotation system that Alan Savory um, teaches in his holistic management stuff, um, then, you know, realistically, you should be able to have most of your livestock on a pasture system with only supplementary feed. That will keep your costs down a little bit, but it's still something you have to consider. Uh, Pest and disease management. (laughs) There's a great saying in permaculture circles that goes, you don't have too many pests, you have not enough predators. And that is so, so true. So consider, for example, in a feed shed environment where you've got mice and rats getting into your feed, um, what predators do they have? Do you have a barn cat? Do you have a small dog that that will um, track them down and kill them? Our field mice out in the paddock that go near the chicken feed um, usually get attacked and killed by the chickens <laughs> so that's a great system of predator control around their own feed um, Same with vegetable gardens If you've got a lot of pests in your veggie gardens it might be worth bringing your chickens in in a cage setup where you can just kind of control where they go um, and ensure that they don't go into the garden beds that you don't want them going into where they're seedlings and allow them to go through and kind of bring that pest number back down again Um, I'm also looking at the moment at putting in bat boxes for this coming summer we get a lot of tiny little they're so gorgeous little brown fruit bat kind of things Uh, and I have read some books on on the fact that they are awesome uh, pest controllers in regards to mosquitoes and flies and things like that so being able to use a natural system for that pest control to me is is ideal I don't have to feed the bats I don't have to do anything I just have to put a couple of bat boxes up that they can live in and encourage them to be there because we have natural bats in our environment the idea is that they will come in and and keep that mosquito population down which is a win-win for me Um, so those kinds of things you can do that anything you can do where it's reducing your pest cost control is obviously an added benefit for you uh, food preservation and storage is the next one. Now, you can spend thousands in this area. I um I joke about it that you go onto the canning pages and watch what some women are spending. And I think, oh, my goodness, <laughs> their, their husbands would be sitting back going, I'm not so don't feel so bad about buying so much, spending so much on a new truck. Um, so things for canning. Uh, that you will need is um, obviously uh, the bottles themselves, so the jars. Uh, now you can pick them up sometimes at discount rates at discount shops and things like that. I I'd prefer to go the better quality ones, the name brand ones, so Ball or um, I'm trying to think what the other name is, the other bottle. But there's a couple of jars that are made by companies that have been making them for years, and they seem to be better quality and last longer. You can get cheaper ones if you're just starting out go the cheaper ones and see whether or not it's something you're going to stick with. It's, there's no point spending a million dollars on a hobby that you're then going to you know, not bother continuing. But I have seen home-style dehydrators that are worth thousands that people have spent on. Um, obviously freezers, um, you know, having a freezer, but I mean, I, I've only just worked out in the last 12 months that Costco have a lifetime guarantee on all their items. So our next freezer will definitely be coming from Costco um so that I can go back and hand it back in when it breaks. Uh, but just start small. If you're already in an urban or suburban environment, and you want to have a crack at it, buy a couple of cheap jars and, and try canning. Now for canning on a stovetop you're gonna need a big uh, metal container, so a big metal pot to be able to really fully submerse the jars in to to do it. Um, I went and bought one from Big W, and I think it cost me 20 bucks. and it's huge, and I still have it. It's been through the wars. Um, I have um, reduced down my wax out of my beehives in it, so it's got a kind of funny residue all over it still because you can never get that stuff off. Um, But I've used it for canning, and it works a treat. It comes with a lid. It's just a big, like, 30-litre pot for, for boiling these jars in. Um, the other thing you can do is when you're looking at properties, see if they have a root cellar or a um, like a pantry system off the kitchen where I'm in the process of wanting to build a proper root cellar underground so that it keeps at that constant temperature. Um, it's a cost to do if you've got the space to do it. You know, the cost is literally digging the hole. Now, that could be a case of hiring a backhoe for a day to come in and do it. Handy Helper and I have talked about it. Uh, Coming closer into summer, we are going to hire a backhoe for a weekend. And then I said to him, he won't be sleeping over the weekend. He will literally be digging the entire 48 hours while we have the backhoe. Because we have so many things that we could use it for while we've got it. So you just want to have it running the whole time. Get your dollars worth out of every hour. Uh, But having a root cellar, obviously, is a great way to save costs because then you can do your food storage over a longer period of time so for the cost I think it's still like even if we had to spend I think it's like $250 a day for a backhoe that would pay itself back within a year for us given what we grow Um, and also I would also use it I think probably as a bit of a cheese cave depending on what the humidity was like in there Uh, So one thing that a lot of people don't think about, I've only got two more things to go through. So one thing people don't think about with funds allocation is education and training. And I have to be honest, education and training is something that I would have never thought as a farmer. I would have never gone, well, what do I need? You know, I can YouTube most things and I don't need to pay and go and do a course. But oh my God, since starting this journey, seriously there are so many courses you could do to expand your knowledge um obviously there's my course i'm going to throw that one in there there's my course which is the backyard chicken keeping and my soon up and coming three-day sustainability challenge um there are only little costs there's costs there's there's courses that you can do on long-term you know regenerative agricultural practices you can be looking at thousands for some of these courses are they worth it well I haven't done all of them, I haven't done half of them, but certainly it's something that Handy Helper and I are both looking at doing in that we want to put money aside so that we can go and do these courses. Uh, We're stewards of the land that we're on and we want to make sure that we do the right thing by that soil and by the land. So obviously having funds allocation set aside for further learning, for further education, I think is something that we just don't think about, but we really do need to... You, you need to factor that into your costs. Um, and the last thing, which I also just put a post out about this, is emergency funds. Oh my God, so many people don't think about this and I've probably been guilty of it. I'll put my hand up. I've been guilty of it on occasion where I haven't had money put aside. But uh, I think the latest stats from um, budgeting gurus, and I'm no budgeting guru, um, is that you need to have between three and six months' worth of expenses uh, built up as an emergency fund. Now, obviously, for some people, six months' worth of expenses is a fucking shitload of money. And uh, I myself can't have, I I wouldn't be able to store up three months or six months' worth of um, expenses. But three months' worth of expenses, that I'm working towards, that I really am trying for, And the reason to have that money there is in the event that an emergency happens and you don't have funds coming into the farm, you need to keep living. You need to keep functioning and you can't put every creditor off. So if you've got to pay your mortgage, you've got to make sure you've got three months worth of mortgage payments set aside. So for us, that's like two grand a month. So that's 6,000 we need set aside for mortgage payments. Um, But what if your fridge suddenly goes on the fritz? And you need to replace the fridge or the washing machine. We've had to do that. Our washing machine died. (coughs) Because I'm a mad keen secondhand user of things, um, I just went and bought a secondhand one. Now, the secondhand one is a top loader. Is it the one that I would pick if I was buying brand new? No, not at all. Uh, But for secondhand, for $250 washing machine, uh, it fits the bill perfectly. It's kept working. It's been a year and a half now with that washing machine and we've had no problems out of it. So having a contingency fund or emergency fund set aside is something that you really do need to factor in with your costs. It's no good living week to week and never being able to put any extra aside. Now, on my little post that I put out the other day, I said that one thing you might need to consider is taking on a side hustle or a part-time job momentarily, part-time, for a short period of time until you build up that contingency fund. And then once you've got that contingency fund set up, then you can just go back to your normal jobs, normal hours, not doing the extra. But so long as you treat that fund as the emergency fund, it is not the fund for, oh, we really feel like takeaway this week. Let's go buy some takeaway. I'll just dip into the emergency fund and use that money. It's not for that. So if you're going to start doing that, you may as well not even bother. Anyway, that is my list of costs for setting up your homestead and getting started. Um, The actual cost, the actual number costs, um, I'm happy to share if people want to know. Like I said, it was $10,000 for the tank. Batteries, I've got for 395, I think it was each, Uh, but you could pay anywhere up to $1,000 for a battery. Um, Smaller tanks, obviously, are less money. You can get a small tank. If you're in an urban environment, you get a small tank for a couple of grand. Um, solar panels, I don't think are very expensive. Again, you could get just a small solar panel and and start the system rolling. And honestly, you don't need if you if you don't know what you're doing, go on YouTube it. So there's so many things that I find on YouTube that I just don't think about until I go looking for them, and then I I look on YouTube and go, oh shit, <laughs> that's that guy's got a really good way of explaining that. Um, but the costs of setting up are something that you need to make sure you've got the money. If you are going to move to a larger farm, make sure you've got the money aside. If you're not, if you're going to do it as an urban homestead and or suburban homestead, um, just start small. Start really small. Have two or three chooks in the backyard. Go and do a beekeeping course. Again, that's one of your further education things. And my beehive, my the, the only beehive I've actually ever paid for, cost me $250. Um, and that was a three box hive, very healthy. It's still very healthy. It's my, my primary hive. All my other hives I've got, I've actually got through going and rescuing a hive from somewhere <laughs> and suddenly I've got a new beehive um, or I've somebody's you know, gifted me an old box or I've built an old box or I've gone and bought a, se- uh, not secondhand, I don't like buying secondhand bee, bee boxes, uh, but I've got um, the cheapy Chinese ones that you just nail together. Uh, the chicken coop we built out of an old trailer. The electric fencing cost us I think it was $280 for the chicken fencing and $480 for the goat fencing for the electric fencing. Um, our brooder house uh, I bought the heater pad for $40 because I bought it off Alibaba so I got a trade rate. And the old house that we used was the old chicken coop that we refurbished and cleaned it all out. Anyway, if you want me to go through more on the costs, let me know. But that's a quick rundown of what our costs were. So keep an eye out for our three-day self-sustainability challenge. I'm really looking forward to it. I think some people would get a lot out of it. Um, It's going to be cheap so that you can get in easy without kind of sitting there and worrying about breaking the bank. Um, And otherwise, I will speak to you all next week when we start talking about August, the month of preparation. See you, everyone. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much for listening today. I hope you've enjoyed our time together. If you did, I'd be so grateful if you left me a review. I would also absolutely love it if you tagged me in the next post on your favourite socials at either Not the Farmer's Wife or Mojo Homestead. And don't forget to get your free guide to Backyard Chicken Keeping at www.mojohomestead.net backslash seven must knows. And remember, grow the life you want to live. See ya!